Um, so we're in a series called Believe. And uh, we've been looking at what do we believe about God? What do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? What do we believe about His Holy Word? What do we believe about this world, about humanity? What do we believe about all of these different things? And the reason why it's so important for us to ask what we believe is because what we believe really determines our actions in a lot of ways. I mean, there are certain things that you, that you feel and that you believe that cause you to do and to live and to make the choices that you do. How many of you have a certain laundry detergent that you purchase just because it may be a few dollars more because you believe it does the best job in cleaning your clothes? Anybody do that? Yeah, there's things that we purchase. For me, it's a certain brand of toilet paper. I know that's a little weird, 2TMI. But you cannot. I don't care how much more expensive it is. I'm getting that stuff because I just love it. And it, Okay, I'll stop there. But there are things that we do and things that we say, or not say, but the choices that we make because what we believe today We're talking about a very core characteristic about God that that shapes how we interact with this world, and that is compassion. Look at the scripture, Psalms 86.15. It says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Because of your compassion, you're slow to anger. You're abounding in love and faithfulness. We believe that God is compassionate. And we believe that Jesus modeled that compassion here on this earth. And if God is compassion and Jesus lived compassion and we're called to be followers of His, the word Christian means little Christ. If we're called to be Christians, then that means us as His followers are called to live a life of compassion. Right? Yeah. If you need some convincing about how Jesus lived, look, turn in your Bibles or pull up in your phones or whatever. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter, or not Mark, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is like an epic day in the life of Jesus. You read Matthew chapter 9, you think, how how did this guy do it all? I mean, he was, Matthew chapter 9 starts with Jesus returning to his city. And immediately the scripture says in Matthew chapter 9 that a man who was, who was paralytic was brought to him. And the scripture says that not only did Jesus heal the man, but Jesus restored his soul. He forgave him of his sins. And the scripture says that as he was forgiven and as he was healed, his legs were restored and he got up and he started jumping and dancing and it freaked everybody out around him. I mean, this is like chaos, pandemonium happening. And then it says right after that in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus sees this guy named Matthew who is a tax collector and he walks up to Matthew and he says, hey, I want you to be one of my followers, one of my disciples. And Matthew says, well, come to my house and eat. And what do we know about tax collectors? They were... They weren't everybody's buddy. I mean, it's like the IRS today. It's like, who's hanging out with the IRS? I mean, none of us are doing that. And, um, and so Matthew is, is a tax collector. Nobody likes him. And Jesus says, okay, well, I'll go to your house for dinner. And so he goes to this, and the scripture says that he's having dinner with a group of people that, that, that the Pharisees recognized as notorious Sinners. I mean, what kind of life do you have to be leading for a group of people to say, hey, not only are you kind of the rough crowd, but you are notoriously bad. And that's who Jesus is eating with. 
That's who he is fellowshipping with. That's who he's spending time with. And, and so the Pharisees come by and he has this conversation with the Pharisees about why he came. And he didn't come for the sick, but he, or he didn't come for the, the healthy. He came for the sick and he came to, to heal those who are broken and, and, and that need a doctor. And that's why he's here. And then a group of John, who is his cousin, John the Baptist's followers, come to Jesus and they start this conversation with Jesus saying, hey, um, tell us about this fasting thing. Because we're followers of John and we've been fasting and here you are, Jesus, feasting what gives. And it's like they're just saying, we're kind of sick of this, we'd rather be doing this, can you talk to us about this fasting thing? And so Jesus starts teaching about fasting and feasting and how since he is here that people should be celebrating with him because the king, the Messiah, has come. And so all this is happening around him. And the scripture goes on to talk about how while he was feasting shortly after that, a ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, my daughter is dying would you come to my home and heal her? And so Jesus is like, yeah. And so he starts following this ruler. And as he's following this ruler, a woman who's been bleeding for, I think the scripture says like 10 years or 17 years, some ridiculous amount of time, comes and touches Jesus' cloak and, and becomes healed. And so Jesus says, stop. Are you getting a picture of this chaos that's happening around Jesus? And so he stops and talks to this woman and then, and then he goes to this man's house, and when he gets there, the daughter has, has died. And so Jesus says, okay, everybody leave the house. And it's just him and the little girl, and he raises her back to life and walks out together. And as they walk out, these paralyzed, actually not paralyzed, um, these, uh, what does the scripture say? Um, these two men who were blind come to Jesus. And, and, uh, and so Jesus heals them. And then the scripture says that a mute man comes to Jesus and, and he begins to speak. And you would think that after a chapter like this, that Jesus would be ready for a vacation, right? I'm sweating just talking about it. I mean, it's that chaotic of, of a day or a couple days. This, this craziness is happening. But not Jesus. Because look in your notes. What, is, what does Jesus do? In Matthew chapter 9, this is how Jesus responds. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every, you might want to circle that word, every disease and sickness. And when he saw, say that word after me, saw, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and that's Jesus. And then Paul writes to his followers in Colossians, and he says this in Colossians 3.12. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, as followers of Jesus, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. So we have this compassionate God who lives his compassion out in the person of Jesus. And then Paul writes to all of his followers saying, because of this compassion that God has for us, because of the way he lives, I want you as his chosen and holy people to live compassionate lives. How do we do that? I'm so glad you asked. Here's four thoughts. You ready? The first one is this. Is that compassion begins with eyes that see. 
going to a doctor doctor's office as a kid is like the worst thing in the world, right? It's like get anxiety going into it. Um, but when I was a kid, my favorite thing about going to the doctor's office was the magazine called Highlights. Does anybody remember that magazine in, in doctor's offices? There is one page. Um, can, oh, before I get in, just think about how disgusting this is, by the way. I mean, I think, I think magazines and doctor's offices are like job security. They put them there so that people will touch them and, and get sick and then spread them to somebody else. And so it just keeps people coming back and back. I mean, as a little kid, you know, you're looking through highlights and as you turn pages, they're like sticking together because of all the goo and snot and boogers that kids... And, and I wanted to be just like my grandpa when I was a kid. And whenever he would turn a page, he would do this lick the finger and turn the page. And so I can just picture myself as like an eight-year-old turning pages. Lick, lick, lick. Disgusting. Disgusting. Now when I go to the doctor's office with Wesley, I go in like a surgeon. It's like, what can I not touch? I don't want to touch anything. I perel everywhere, just getting all the germs off. Okay, I digress. But anyways... So here's, here's this magazine highlights. My favorite thing in the magazine highlights is the, is the picture search. Do you guys remember this? I, I found one online. This is the picture search in highlights, right? And so there's a list of things on the right-hand side that don't fit the scene on the left that are hidden throughout. This is a cat day at the ballpark, but there's an artist's brush and a banana and a bowl. And they're just not like a bowl sitting on a table. It's a bowl hidden in a bush or on a person's head or, or somewhere that you can't see unless you closely, closely pause and look. Do you guys remember doing these as kids? It's good times, right? Here's the deal. If you're not looking, you'll never find it. What if we, as followers of Jesus, began to pray, God, give me eyes to see. I don't know about you, but my life seems pretty busy. Anybody feel busy from time to time? And when we get in the routine and the pace of life, it is so easy to just go and go and go and never see the opportunities that God has placed in our lives to love people that he's put in our path. We just don't see it. We just don't see it. We get our blinders. We get focused on stuff and, and everything just flows right by and we don't see the needs that He's placed for us to heal and to love and to make a difference in. A teacher of the law in Matthew, or actually Luke chapter 10, Jesus is teaching about the great commandment. And I think most of us in here are familiar with the great commandment. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Does this sound familiar? Raise your hand if it sounds familiar. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says the second commandment is just like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the scripture says that in Luke chapter 9, that a teacher of the law just happened to be there listening to Jesus. And, And the scripture says... To justify his own actions, he asked the question, well, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor then? He wasn't really looking for an answer. He, mostly he was looking for, G, for, for Jesus to justify the, the, the decisions and the way he treats the people around him. And so Jesus begins to tell a story. And, and I, you have to be clear, this, is, this scripture doesn't say it's a parable. And so we don't know for sure if this is a story that actually happened 
or if this is a story that Jesus is telling at this moment to prove a point, or if this is something that Jesus witnessed or Jesus heard about. We really don't know the context of the story, but Jesus tells the story, and it's the story of the Good Samaritan that some of you may be familiar with. And this is what it says. It says, A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, so he saw the man... He crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handled, handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go go and do the same. Let's break this down for a second. There are three characters in this. The first one is is a priest. And the priest is is the most holy of all Jews, right? And what does the priest do when he sees this this man, this Jewish man lying on the ground beaten? And and the scripture says that he that he walks on by. And not only does he walk on by, but he walks to the other side of the road to get by. And, And I mean, I guess maybe a priest could have a few excuses why he would do that. I mean, for one, it, was, it, would, be, it would make him ceremoniously unclean if he touched a man that was dead. And so, and so I could kind of see him saying, okay, well, this guy could be dead. I don't want to touch him because then I have to go through all these rituals to make myself clean again before I can perform my priestly duties. And so I'll just go to the other side of the road to avoid it. That could be his story of why he did it. Or it might have been he just didn't want to take the risk, right? I mean, what we know is that guy just got beat up right there. And how do we know it's not a trap? How did he not know that there was somebody, the bandits were still nearby? And, and so he kind of maybe said, well, I'm going to go to the other side of the road so I can avoid being attacked. We really don't know. Maybe he just said, hey, I just don't want to get my robes dirty. You know, it's hard scrubbing blood out of some robes and so let's I'll just avoid this the point is this is that the most holy of all the Jews a priest did not think a fellow Jew was worthy of being saved it says something the second man is a Levite or a temple assistant you can kind of compare him to like what an altar boy would be like in the Catholic Church. He's, he's the priest's right-hand man. You know, he's there to help and to assist. And, and if you might think, okay, the priest, we can kind of a little bit let off the hook. A temple assistant, we can't let off the hook because he doesn't have any of the same excuses the priest has. But he does the exact same thing. He goes to the other side of the road and he passes on by. These are two really good Jews that other people would look, look up to and say, they're the holy ones. And they don't see him as a neighbor. And they pass on by. For some reason, they thought this man was unworthy of compassion. But then there's the Samaritan. What do we know about the Samaritan? 
What is, what's the adjective that Jesus gives the Samaritan? Despised. Samaritans were hated by Jews. They considered them like half-breeds that had like given up their Jewish faith. And so they hated them. And, and they were often battling against them. And so if you could think of any... What they probably thought the Samaritan would do is see the man and say, Hey, I need to finish this guy off. Punch him in the, you know, kick him in the head and start looking through his robes to make sure nobody else left anything, you know? That's what they thought the Samaritan would do. That's how little they thought of Samaritans, how much they hated them. And Jesus said, This is the despised one we call the Samaritan. And what did he do? The scripture says that he felt compassion. He saw the man and felt something in his heart. If you want compassion to come alive in your life, then you have to take the blinders off so that you can see. It's easy to go through life with blinders on and oblivious to the needs around us. We get so caught up in all the stuff that we can't see the concerns and the needs of the people that God has placed us to love. The reality is, the reality is that there are needs everywhere. There are, there are needs everywhere. Stephen Covey, anybody recognize that name? He's an author that wrote a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And um, Stephen Covey tells him of experience that he had on a New York um, subway. He said he was sitting quietly in the car, and the other people sitting in the car were actually kind of having an enjoyable ride. It was nice, peace, and quiet, and they were going from one location to another. And when they made the next stop, a father got on board with a bunch of kids. And the story doesn't say how many kids there were. They, he just says they were chaotic. He says, instantaneously, the peace of the ride became chaos. And the father sat down in his seat and he buried his, hand, his eyes in his hands and began to rub his temples and completely checked out. The kids were like crawling all over the subway car, crawling over people, playing tag, just chaos, being unruly, fighting, arguing. And he says everybody began to get agitated in the subway train. He said, after a while, I, I just, I could not not say something. And so he finally spoke up and he asked the man, he said, what, what is going on? Are you going to do anything about these children? And he says, the man looked up and he says, oh, you're right. I guess I do, should do something about it. He said, we just left the hospital where their mother died an hour and a half ago. And I don't know what to think. And I don't know what to do. And I guess they don't either. Stephen said it changed everything. When he not only saw, but he heard and he got close enough. Compassion sees and understands the hurt of other people. Here's a second thought. I I, I put this in your notes before we go there. It says, sometimes we see right past people, but Jesus, he sees right into them. What if we did the same? Here's a second thought. Compassion begins with a heart that feels. A few years ago, a baseball fan by the name of Brian Stowe went to the opening day of the Dodgers Stadium. And before he left, he was severely beaten. And he was left in need of lifetime care. 
Um, and there's a lot of blame to go around in the case. You can blame alcohol because the people that were involved were, were drunk at the time. You can blame youthful bravado, if you will. Um, you can blame an argument that turned physical and blew into a fight. There's lots of blame. Um, but consider this. This beating took place in full view of thousands of people in a stadium that was patrolled by 442 police and security guards. When the league was reviewing the situation and determining what to do, this is what they said, and I want to quote them. He says, they said, a culture of apathy and indifference among the staff and stadium contributed to this situation. In other words, for a couple of drunk young men to get into a fight, shame on them, right? But for thousands of spectators and 442 security and police officers to do nothing about it, then shame on all of us. Shame on us. Apathy is not just their problem. It's become all of our problems. In 1993, Edna Phillips was 70 years old. She was a resident of a a living estate in England. And she was murdered by two teenage girls who lived nearby. Now certainly the, the blame rests on the two teenage girls who committed this act. But as the facts were reviewed by Parliament and local representatives, they made this observation. I want to quote again. It says, Why was it that so many people around her clearly knew what was going on but did not take action on her behalf. It's apathy. It's the heart that stops feeling. Have you ever found yourself there where you've gone through just enough of life and stuff in the last week or few days or the last month or the last year when you finally at some point look into the mirror and you say, man, what has happened to my heart? It's shut down. I don't feel like I used to feel for the people in my life. Anybody been there with me? Luke 10.33 says this, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion. Compassion is an interesting Greek word because it, it literally means to be moved moved in one's bowels. It's a word splunknon, and it's not a pleasant thought. I mean, it's to feel that gut feeling, that, 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 that rumble inside, and when you see something, it's just not right, and, and you just feel it deep down in here. For the Greeks, the gut was like their, what they considered the center of their emotion, that, it, that, that emotion came from their gut. And so, so compassion is that word describing something that moves us deep within. Have you ever used that saying, well, that was a kick in the gut? That's that feeling of compassion. The word compassion means literally to suffer with someone. Compassion begins with a heart that feels. A heart that feels. Here's a third thought. Compassion begins with hands that do. The Samaritan saw the need with his eyes. He had that gut feeling that he had to do something about it. And then he chose 
to do something. There's a big difference between sympathy, which is the feeling, and compassion, which is the doing. Compassion compels you to do something. He just doesn't pass by on the other side. He does something. The scripture says that he moved towards the injured man. You have to move towards people to express compassion in order to build relationships. It's not something that just mystically happens. But it's an effort. And it's not always convenient. The Samaritan is moving towards a situation where he could be hurt. I mean, that man was just beaten in that spot. It wasn't something that he took lightly. The Samaritan, he did six things. He, he went over to him. He soothed his wounds. He bandaged his wounds. He put him on his donkey. I mean, if he put him on his donkey, what does that mean he had to do? He had to walk. I mean, that's a little inconvenient, don't you think? He took, he took him to an inn, and he took care of him. In every aspect, he demonstrated compassion. He could have walked away, but he walked towards. He took care, took time to help. I put this in your notes. The big difference between sympathy and compassion is that compassion moves you to do something. Psalms 82, 3, and 4. Listen to what the thing, what, 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 what David writes that we need to do. He says, we defend the weak and the fatherless. Defend, that's what you do. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Uphold, that's what you do. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. When we see see someone as Jesus sees them, then Jesus will lead us to help people the way Jesus would help them. When we see see people the way Jesus sees them. Jesus is telling a story to his disciples about... When, um, when the master finally comes, when the king comes back. And it's a parable. It's a parable of the goats and the sheep. And the scripture says that, that at the end, that the master is going to separate. He's going to put the, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And, and he's going to look to the sheep who are on his right and say, you know, well done, you know, enter into your kingdom. And, and then he says this. This is uh, Matthew 25. He says, For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was a person in prison and you came to visit me. And, they, and he says that the people are going to look back at Jesus and say, When? When did we do this? I don't remember clothing the king. I mean, when did we do this? And Jesus responds, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did for me. When you fed, when you gave, when you invited me into your home, when you gave me clothes and you clothed me, when I was sick and you looked after me, when I was in prison you came to visit me, when you did these things, you did them for God. Look, being compassionate doesn't make us right with God. There's only one thing that makes us right with God, and that's the blood of Jesus. Him forgiving our sins and restoring us to it. That's the only thing. Being compassionate shows that we've been made right with God. It's the evidence of His life pouring in and through us to other people. One last thought is that compassion begins with feet that go. What's amazing about the Samaritan is that he, he went above and beyond. 
I mean, he didn't just take the guy to somebody who could help him and just say, hey, it's your problem now. He took and he said, hey, I'm going to give you this, and if it ends up costing more to take care of him, I'll come back and I'll pay the rest. I, I need to move on and, and do what I need to do. He went above and beyond. And then in 1037, he looks at this, these people who are gathered to listen, who've heard this story, and he says, now this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and do likewise. Go and do the same. This story that you've heard, this example that you've seen, go and do the same for other people. In 1952, the evangelist Everett Swanson went to South Korea, I'm just going to read this to you, to preach the gospel to troops in the Republic of Korea. The Republic of Korea's army. It says, during his visit, he was deeply moved by the number of children orphaned by the war. He discussed this issue with a missionary who challenged Reverend Swanson. He says, you've seen the tremendous needs and unparalleled opportunities of this land. What do you intend to do about it? In effect, the missionary was saying, are you just going to feel sympathy for these children or are you going to express compassion? Swanson returned to the United States and along with his wife Miriam and with the help of Dr. Gus and Helen Hemwell, a ministry was launched on behalf of these orphans. At his revival meetings, Reverend Swanson began to share about the needs of the Korean children. Christians began to donate funds to help meet daily living needs. And by 1954, the sponsorship programs still offered today was born, whereby people would give a monthly gift to help provide food, shelter, medical care, and Bible instruction for, spe- for a specific child. And in 1963, Swanson, who was becoming uneasy about his name being associated with the ministry because of how large it was growing, he was inspired by Jesus' words in Matthew, Matthew 15.32 to change the name. And Matthew 15.32 says this, I have compassion for these people. I do not want to send them away hungry. So the ministry's name was changed and is now known worldwide as Compassion International. What began as one missionary's challenge um, to an evangelist to see a need and to meet it has served millions of children over 25 nations across the world. Compassion says, I'm going to serve you because that's what Christ calls me to do. And I'm going to love you even if you don't deserve it because Jesus loves me even when I don't deserve it. That's compassion. We live in a world where it's easy to become jaded and apathetic with all the stuff happening around us. But what we desired, or God built the desire in us to show compassion. Compassion begins with eyes that see. That doesn't see the outward stuff, but sees the need and sees the people that are that are God is placing in our lives all around us. It, it begins with a heart that feels and it, and, it, and it gets away from apathy and says, I mean, I've got to do something about this. I, I hurt along with these people deep down in my gut. I can't stand it no more. It begins with hands that do. It's just sympathy unless you do something about it. And then it becomes compassion. It becomes with feet that go. I'm going to ask Sarah and the worship team to come up as we close. Father, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for my friends that are here this evening for this church family. And Father, I pray that we would be known as a church that is, that is compassionate to the world around us. 
God, give us eyes to see the needs that are happening in our everyday lives. As a congregation, as a, as a church family, but also as individuals. We all have these different people that you've placed in front of us. And to be honest, it's so easy to just go through the motions and, and to never truly see. Give us eyes to see, God. Give us hearts that feel. Lord, I have to confess that I've at times have had a very hard heart. A heart that's in a way sometimes shut down to the things around me. Father, I pray that for all of us that we would begin to feel once again the pain of the people that you've placed in our lives. That you would give us hands to do something about it. Sympathy just feels, compassion does. Lord, may we be people that do and that go, that seek it out, even when it's inconvenient and hard. Father, change our hearts. Breathe new life into our spirits. In Jesus' name, we love you. We're grateful. Let your Holy Spirit do his good work in us.